Hold the road and go. Where am I to go, me Johnny? Where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go? Hello, and welcome to Where Am I to Go podcast. Today we're on the Oregon coast, Depot Bay, which is just north of Newport, a little bit south of Tillamook, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. I guess it's the world's smallest bay? It's the world's smallest navigable harbor in the world. Whale Sea Life and Shark Museum and a whale research <laughs> eco-excursion. Here in Depot Bay, we do whale watching, but I also have a museum. My name is Carrie Newell. Okay, you introduced yourself. I was going to introduce you, but you got it, so we're good. Okay. Okay, and we just happened this morning to decide, well, no, we decided two months ago that we were going to go on a whale watching tour. And our whale watching tour this morning was absolutely fantastic. We saw one whale, which I guess you could say was maybe a little bit disappointing, but we're early in the season. But the boat ride was unbelievable. She's got a Navy SEAL raft with 600 horsepower on the back. This boat gets up and moves. It is comfortable. Uh, the seating is nice. It feels very safe. And Carrie did a fantastic job of captaining the boat. Uh, knew where the reefs were, knew where the whales were, or, or where the whale was, because that was the thing. And I can't imagine anything being more frustrating than being a guide and every day going out into an ocean that is millions of miles big, trying to find a whale that's 40 foot long. And being a guide for anything, it'd be tough, even though you know that they're there trying to find them and knowing which section of that little bit of ocean you're trying to find would be pretty difficult. But she did a good job. We were very impressed. Uh, the whale watching was good and uh, highly recommend Carrie for that. And we stepped inside to sign up this morning and this museum is fantastic. She's got so much in here as far as the whales, the sharks, uh, sea life. It's like a dry aquarium, I guess you could say. We went to the Newport Aquarium also. Very, very nice uh, aquarium. But you've got a display that uh, talks about all the different things, and you get to see the skeletons and uh, baleens and, and all the other parts that, that you can't see at the museum because that's all inside the fish still. But you've got a lot of stuff that you can see that's inside, outside. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So... So, let's go ahead and start with uh, the museum. We walk in, and uh, you've got a little gift shop and a real nice mural of a couple of whales up on the wall. And then we turn to the right, and we get to the shark display. Tell yes. us a little bit about this. So, Lauren, um, well, first of all, let me, let me tell you about my background just for a second. I would love for you to tell about your background. So, um, I do have four degrees. I'm originally from Michigan, and I followed my ex from Michigan to South Dakota. Got my first degree in fisheries and wildlife in South Dakota, and then I went to Utah. Um, in Utah, I got a degree um, that was a composite of uh, biology, um, specifically zoology, botany, and geology. There's tons of neat geology, of course, in Utah, and then... Um, then went to Arizona. I got my master's um, in Arizona. And 
there I got a degree in um, invertebrate zoology and also did paleontology. And all the way, I was starting to teach part-time. And when I got done with my master's in Flagstaff, Arizona, then I applied to one job and I got it. And at that time, I was by myself with my two girls and a different dog and moved up and worked at a college in Eugene, Lane Community College. Also did a little bit of um, teaching at Oregon State. And then I've been here ever since. I was 1992. That's kind of a rough ride from uh, the Great Lakes to the R desert. I know. And then the ocean. I know. That's, that's pretty cool. I know. And I got my last degree at Oregon State after I made a discovery with what the gray whales were eating. No, no one knew that. It was a brand new discovery. Matter of fact, uh, Jean-Michel Cousteau, Jacques Cousteau's son, um, said, um, hey, Carrie, can, can I film your research? And I was only one of a number of researchers. He had a, this PBS show called Gray Whale Obstacle Course with researchers going all the way from Mexico up to Alaska. And I was in the middle of the segment and I got to dive with the Cousteau divers. And so, um, and then they told me, they said, Carrie, with all your background, you should, you should start a business. And I took their advice and I got my first boat and got my captain's license, and now it's been going on 20 years, 20 plus, and um, I'm still still running trips, still making discoveries. Um, I've been writing books on whales and, and all kinds of other sea life, and um, taking people out, and I'm retired from teaching now, but I'm not really retired because now, I got a lesson. Yeah, <laughs> you're my new student now, Lauren. So, so now I'm I'm sharing all my collections since I was four um, to as many people as I can um, in my museum, my whale, sea life, and shark museum. And my business is Whale Research Eco Excursions, um, OregonWhales.com. And so I just want to share with you the stuff in the museum. So we're going to share. Well, let's, let's go back just a little bit. Okay. Okay. Uh, we watched the film before we before we went out on the boat this right. morning, which had the segment of you and Cousteau, right. which was really cool. Thank you. But you also had the history of how you found out what the whales were eating and some of the research that you had done. And I'd really like to know, how do you collect whale diarrhea? <laughs> I saw this net, but if it's what I think it is, wouldn't it all just go right through the net? Oh, you're very smart. You, know, you have common <laughs> sense there, Lauren. So, um, so the thing is, um, I have a very fine plankton net. It's a very fine mesh. Okay. And so... Um, so that, that could work to collect it. It does look like reddish diarrhea, exactly. But how but, long do you follow a whale around before you actually... I mean, I've tried to collect dog urine before, and oh, it's not an easy task. You're, you're sliding underneath there hoping the dog doesn't move. I know. Move. Uh, but I don't see how you do this out in the ocean in a boat following it around with a net. Well, you know, it only took me three years. Oh, is that all? That's it. So... <laughs> But you know how excited I was when it finally occurred? I mean, I was I beyond excitement. It's like, so it was very cool. So. That, is, that is awesome. And so what I do now, too, is like I don't always have my plankton net on the boat. So 
if people have a hat with mesh, uh-huh. I will ask to use their hat, which I have, and I can collect the chunks with it, and I'll give them a new hat. But, really? Yeah, I have. I a, just give them their hat back. Well, I could do that too, but it's it's it's, it's tell them it's a scientific yeah. hat now that nobody that, else has one like that's it. That's right. <laughs> Don't wash it. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's very smelly at times. So, <laughs> well, that but, is that's that's interesting to me that you'd follow a whale around for three years hoping to catch something. Well, but it was worth it because you got to meet Cousteau, right? And you got to go out with their expedition. Yep. And you found something new and extremely interesting. Yeah. And it nailed down my my last degree in biological oceanography because no one no one knew. I mean, this was this was brand new. I mean, they thought they were eating amphipods, and um, my my master's at NAU was with amphipods, and amphipods are in mud, and you know these whales are feeding in kelp beds, and kelp's attached to the rock. So it's like, oh, I'm using my common sense here. It's like, okay, if amphipods are in mud, but the gray whales are in kelp beds, it's not making sense. So I put on scuba gear, dove, found the mice of shrimp, and and then. You know, started following gray whales around. It's like, hey, I want to know for sure. Because what I teach about is evidence-based. I just don't do some stuff that's like, oh, this is how it occurs. If I don't know for sure, you know, I, it's like, I have the evidence. I have proof. And you will see as I go through the museum, you will see how that proof will, will weave throughout the museum. Um, I told my students for years, I said, what do your eyes show you and what does your common sense tell you? Because as a professor, I could have told you anything. And so many students believe everything that comes out of a professor's mouth. I told them, do not believe what I say. You know, use your common sense and, and what do your eyes show you? Because that is the truth. Yes. And I think that's so distant of a concept, really, in today's world, where we are told what the truth is, and you believe it 100%, or else you're an idiot. Exactly. And, yeah, I have a problem with that. That's part of why I like museums and part of why I like doing all the things that I do is because I think that a lot of times people that have these conceptions are misconceptions. I, I totally agree. <clears throat> So. so, anyway, we're looking at, at whales and sharks. Yes, yeah, so the shark section here, you will notice here, I have 25 plus stuffed sharks in my exhibit. Um, there was a professor in the 50s, and I am not 100% sure how he got all his sharks. He was a marine biologist, but he, um, he has all these really cool stuffed sharks, uh, zebra sharks, mako sharks, tiger sharks, guitar fish, um, you know, bull sharks, angel sharks. I mean, this so bull mouth is really an interesting. I know the bull the bull mouth guitar fish is one of my very favorites. It's it's got a head that's just huge, and it says that it. Uh, what does it say? It it eats clams, so it digs down in the sand yeah. in order to get them. Yep. That's interesting. Oh, there's so many cool ones. Um, I did a big shark section when I used to teach about my marine in my marine biology class, and and it's just it's phenomenal. But anyhow, he um, he died. 
his wife got all these taxidermied sharks and she didn't know what to do with them. So she sold them to a guy in Lincoln City and then I got them from him. But, but you will see that, um, you know, we have the shark and many times I've had jaws donated and there's little information, you know, underneath the picture in the jaw about each shark. Um, you know, we, we need to save these sharks. I mean, they're at the top of the food chain along with the orcas. And, you know, one of the biggest things is shark fin soup. They kill sharks and they just cut off the fins and, you know, the pectoral fins, the pelvic fins, the dorsal fin, throw this living shark back in the water without any fins. It dies a very agonizing death. And so I love to educate people about how important sharks are to the environment. They keep everything in balance. I mean, we need predators and we need prey. And if we don't have the predators, then the prey go out of balance and it screws up our whole ecosystem. So, so with my shark exhibit, again, I like to not only teach you about the various sharks, but also let you know how important the sharks are in our ecosystem. And something else that's really cool, you talked about the taxidermied sharks that you've got, and you said something about the jaws, but she has the full mouth rings out of lots of different types of sharks, including a hammerhead that has the, the bone that goes out to the two sides of the hammerhead that hold the eyes in with the jawbone there. And all of these are really cool displays as far as the way that the jawbones are displayed, the way that the whales are next to it, the way that you have it uh, talked about as far as which whale it came out of. I mean, not whale, shark. Uh, but tell me a little bit about sharks' teeth structure, because they lose their teeth on a regular basis and keep regenerating them. Is that correct? That is 100% correct. So um, when a shark bites, I mean, it loses teeth. Okay. Okay, because it's, first of all, it's, its whole body is made up of cartilage. Okay. There's no so bones in no a shark? Bones. No bones in no a bones. shark. No bones. It's all wow. cartilage. Um, and so, and then they have, they have their teeth. And so their teeth are just loosely connected to the cartilage. And so as they bite in, um, you know, they'll, they'll lose some teeth and they can replenish those teeth in as little as 24 hours. Really? There's about seven rows of teeth behind the front row. Okay. And so when, um, when one tooth is lost, another one pops into place. They come in as kind of a rotation, it looks like. Yeah, it kind of looks like shingles, shingles on a roof. Yeah, um, they just kind of fold up in as a, as a, she's climbing over her. Uh, I can't quite reach it. <laughs> we're good. You can just point it out. Okay. Well, anyhow, it's, it's, you can kind of see on some of those. Right. Yeah, like That's, that one and that yep. one. Yep. But, but yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. And each, the thing is, you look at the teeth and the teeth tell you what they eat. So let me, let me give you a little shark lesson okay. here, Lauren. So you're um, looking here, for example, at the great white teeth. Okay. You notice the top teeth are triangular. Right. Um, and they're also serrated. So also here, if you look at the bull, bull shark, which is the most dangerous shark, even more dangerous than the great white, simply because it has very, very high testosterone levels, highest in the world, and it can go in fresh and salt water. That is my 
my fear is to see a bull shark um, because they're just, you know, they're very aggressive. How big do times. they get? Well, they go 10, 11 feet. Oh, well, wow. Not, not huge, but still they're, they're, they can be aggressive. And, they're, and, so, they're, and they choose to be aggressive. Yeah, because they have so much testosterone going on. Okay. But notice their teeth. So their teeth are triangular. You saw the great white's teeth are triangular right. and serrated. And the great whites are the second most dangerous shark. And then here we have the tiger shark. That's the third most dangerous. And you notice it has also triangular teeth, although they're very slanty. I love, right. I love tiger shark teeth. I think it's the prettiest tooth, how it slants and They stuff. really are a pretty tooth. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And they're the third most dangerous. And they're, they're called the garbage can shark because they can eat anything. As you can see, a six-foot missile, a suit of armor, a box of jewels, a fur coat, a keg of nails. I bet they got a lot of nutrition out of those dinners. Lots of nutrition. But those three most dangerous sharks, those are, um, those are for cutting. So they'll eat bigger organisms like great whites will eat seals and sea lions. And so they slice and dice. They, okay. they, they cut chunks out of these bigger prey items. Matter of fact, grays or, um, great whites have the pointed bottom teeth and so the pointed bottom teeth hold the prey, top teeth slice and dice. Oh. And so, and then, so whenever you see the triangular tooth, that's a slicing tooth. Okay. That slices into prey, like tiger sharks like turtles. Um, that will cut into the carapace of a turtle. What's a carapace, a shell? Carapace is the top part of a turtle. Okay, okay. Yep, very good. Um, you notice here with a goblin shark how they're pointed. Right. And a short fin mako pointed teeth. And you're looking here at the black tip reef shark and how those teeth are very pointed. Those are grabbing teeth. So those will grab a fish, you know, stab it, and then swallow it whole. And so, so that's no slicing and dicing with that. Just grab, hold, swallow. Okay. And then we have like, um, like with some of our bottom-dwelling sharks and skates and rays, they have teeth that kind of look like um, um, pavement. And so they crush like crabs and clams, okay. and they smash them. It's more of a... Those are our smashing tooth. Okay. So... Yeah, oh. was, it's more like a, it almost looks like a snake scale. It does. All except it'd be more coarse, maybe more like a goat's upper... Yeah. Uh, gums? Yep. Yeah, okay. Yep. So, so anyhow, those are the three main types of teeth that we see. Huh. So, and then, I didn't realize it was that varied. And Yeah, so I can tell just by looking at a tooth what shark it came from, So, which is pretty cool. That's, that's amazing. And then... Now, and when you go digging in anthills or just out in the prairies, out in Arizona or, right. or Utah, and you find shark's teeth... Are those like basically from a great white or because some, most of those of are usually pretty pointed and some yeah. of them are pretty large. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Megalodon, um, I have a number of Megalodon teeth. Okay. And I'll show them to you later. They're okay. actually in my dinosaur room right now. Oh, so, yes. We've got a dinosaur room. So. That is pretty cool. So let's come over here. I call this my tropical section. So in Oregon... We, unfortunately, have a lot of overcast days. 
Right. And and they can be dreary and rainy. I was going to say just drizzly. Yeah. And so, and I love the tropics. So I can come to my tropical exhibit here and just pretend I'm in the tropics. I have a cheers in front of the tropical exhibit. And it's just like, oh, yes. Even though it's pouring <laughs> outside, I can look at, at the tropics and see all the beautiful shells. Uh, you'll see my big giant clam shell here. This, this clam shell is three and a half feet, yes. maybe not quite four, a little, about it's, three and a half feet. I'd say three to three and a half feet round. Yeah. yeah. And so that is very rare to see anymore. Um, Some of those will grow into the six and seven foot yes. diameter yeah, sizes. They get, they get big, huge. Very big. And look at this giant sponge here and the oh, giant wow. sea star. So in here, I have a lot of um, things from the tropics. Uh, some of them I found, some of them were donated, some of them I bought. And so I just wanted to show you the diversity of the tropics. Plus, I also in this section do an eye spy exhibit. So you have little binocs. Okay. And there's I was wondering what those were for because yeah. it's pretty close. <laughs> and it says, I spy a flying lizard. So you see what the flying lizard look like, looks like. And then you need to find it. You can use your binoculars or your naked eye. And then you just scan through the whole exhibit. I tried to embed them in the exhibit so they would um, blend in very well. And so um, there's a gecko there. There's a flying lizard. Oh, thank lizard. you for pointing that out because I would have been looking for that for a long time. It's hard. They're, they're embedded. Um, in the exhibit. I'm so. not really good at the I Spy games anyway. <laughs> so, but there's but, a whole bunch of stuff in here. There is. And, and she's so. got a lot of corals, uh, abalone shell, some of the big uh, conch shells. Uh, coconuts. Coconuts, yeah, there's coconuts. Yep. There's some starfish. Just a whole variety of the tropical shells that, that you would see if you were probably in Hawaii or Polynesia. Yep. or absolutely. In uh, Micronesia, wherever. Yeah. So that's my uh, tropical section. Then we come over here to the intertidal. So in the intertidal, um, we have four zones, spray high, mid, and low. And when we uh, went on our trip today, you remember me telling you about Boiler Bay? Right. Okay, there's the boiler from Boiler Bay. Oh, okay. So in the early 1900s, what happened is a ship called the J.J. Marhofer crashed and one of the two um, steam boilers washed up into the tide pools. And it's still there, it's huge. I mean, it doesn't look real big here, and, but I'm putting some more pictures and you'll see that it's, you know, eight, 10 feet tall. Wow. And so it's, it's a good landmark so I can show the differences in tides. As you notice in the spray zone, it's mostly covered. Right. High zone, you see part of it. Mid zone, you see more of it. And low zone, you see the most of it. Well, the thing about the Oregon coast is that we can have huge variations in our tides. Matter of fact, as you see my two by four here, you'll notice it goes from a minus three up to a plus 10. Okay. So there can be 13 feet of vertical difference between the highest high tide and the lowest low tide. In a 12 hour period. Yes. That's so, a lot of difference. That's a lot. So, so anyhow, um, and I wanted to give people a visual of how to do that. And we normally 
trying to take the buoys here and put it next to high tide and low tide. So, so you know. Oh, so that every day you know what, yes. the, what the height difference is. Exactly. Wow. And, and the so, thing that's cool about this display is that having walked on the beaches, you know, we've been traveling up from California. We went to uh, uh, Glass Beach, just north of uh, San Francisco there in Fort Bragg. Have you ever been there? I have. That is the coolest beach because it, it was a dump at one point in time, but we were there at a really nice low tide, and you were able to see all kinds of things that had been molded into the rock that and almost fossilized uh, rock. Uh, you had your glass. You had there was a truck rear end out there that was oh, all wow. incorporated into the rock. And it was just totally fascinating to see the way that the ocean had built around all of that. But there was so much sea life, like your urchins and your little crabs and starfish. Uh, we saw some abalone and some of that in those little tide pools. But then I'm sure if we'd have been there six, eight hours later, we wouldn't have seen any of that because it would have all been underwater. But Absolutely. you have this set up to where you have the different water levels of... Uh, you know, the, the, the ones that would be deeper and you'd only see it at low tide. Yeah. And then some of the starfish and stuff seem to hang out even when the water isn't uh, covering them all the way. And on up to where you have your muscles that are usually exposed, like on the jetties at that uh, high tide or low tide. Yeah, mid tide. Yeah. yeah. So, so, yeah. So what I've done, Lauren, is I've gone and on the spray zone, there's three distinctive organisms that you'll see. Like if, if the water's covering all this... You can see what's called this rock louse. It looks like right. a roly-poly bug. It's related to that. Okay. Little tiny, tiny snail shells called periwinkles. And then what's called a finger limpet. And then some barnacles. So, so those you'll only see during the spray zone, a higher, higher water level. Everything else is going to be underneath the water. But as the tide's going out, then the high zone creatures will be seen. You can see these black turbans. Right. And what's called these purple and lion shore crabs, um, and what are called the limpets here. So now you're starting to see some of those critters, which are um, characteristic of the high zone. And as we move down, and tide is continually moving out even more, you're going to see your sea stars, your ochre sea stars, your California mussels. You're starting to get into some gooseneck barnacles, some chitons, and and they're amazing. And then during the lowest tide, so zero and less, we have all kinds of neat critters. I mean, we have sea urchins, um, this awesome gumboot chitin, one of my very favorite organisms in the intertidal. It's a, a mollusk. It has a big foot on the underside. It has eight butterfly-shaped plates that embed into its body. They're so cool, aren't they? Mm -hmm. They're amazing. And of course, sea urchins. And I got to tell you a story. So, tell me. Um, when I would teach marine biology, I would put the specimens on the test, a practical test. And so what I did is I took one of the sea urchin tests that um, have lost its spines. And that's what you call it after it lost its spines. It's called a test. Okay. Uh, when they have the spines, like this one's a big red sea urchin, and these are purple sea urchins. And they drop their spines. What's left is a test. And that's dead. It's dead, yes. So okay. my student came up to me, and she said, Carrie, she said, 
Can you please give me a hint? What do you call this? And she had a test in her hand. And I said, I pointed, I said, it's a test. She said, I know it's a test. Give me a hint. <laughs> and I said, no. I said, it is a test. She said, I know it is a test. Just give me a hint. <laughs> so uh, she got it wrong. So, but when we graded the test, she said she'll never in her life forget what a test is. I'll again. bet she won't. Yeah. So, so anyhow, that's um, and that's what I've shown in this exhibit, and a couple of other cool things. Um, I have a little um, this little sand exhibit here. It looks like a sands. <laughs> Gotta get some more sand. But I put all the different kinds of clams that you might see. And then you have them in the sand, and kids like to play with that. And But you can identify the different clams. And most of these are edible. And then another really cool thing, and I have a little story about it. It's the story of the Pidot clam. So did you guys These see? were all over the place at Glass Beach. Uh, that's what I was wondering. I was going to ask And what it. we're looking at is what we saw was a, gla was a, a rock wall or a, a soft sandstone right. wall of some sort or another with lots of little holes in it and clams all over on the inside, clamshells and yeah. stuff. Little round snail-looking things. Yeah. Well, let me tell you the story of the Piddock. Okay. okay. So the Piddock is a clam, and you should know that all clams... Um, and a matter of fact, pretty much all the invertebrates, when they're tiny, they're up in the plankton. Okay. okay. So when these pitot clams were tiny, they were in the plankton. And when they come out of the plankton, they land on soft sandstone, a sandy, um, a sandy, limey rock. And their lifestyle is that they come down and they drill into oh. a hole and they twist, 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 twist. And if you notice, see the serrations on uh -huh. the butt end? Oh, okay. And yeah, it's so, like sandpaper on yes, the, on the yes. butt end of their shell. Yep, and as they twist, they make their hole. And once they're in there, though, they're stuck the rest of their lives. But now they're filter feeding. Right. Um, they have their home, and now they filter feed and live in that rock the rest of their life. And the best display of that I've ever seen was there at Glass Beach. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah. just, there were just walls oh, of it. It's amazing. Yeah. And this is yeah. off of the Oregon coast also? Absolutely. Lots just of if it. you're walking along the Everywhere. cliffs? Yep. Wow. Yep. Now, another so. question I have, just because you were talking about the spray zone, along the Oregon and California coast, you've got lots of, uh, lots of islands out there, little rock islands and stuff, and you have trees. Are those trees mostly feeding off of the spray, or are they reliant totally on fresh water for their roots and stuff? Because uh, the, they appear to be pine trees from the right, long distance shore, and shore all. Shore pines. We have right. shore pines um, and Engelman, um, and excuse me, Sitka spruce. Sitka spruce and shore pines are our two main conifers along, right along the coast. They do need to have fresh water, okay. but they can tolerate having um, the sea spray on their needles but but they don't really get their water from the sea spray no. they're dependent upon the rains and the fog and, absolutely okay absolutely good question so yeah and if you notice here i did have this wall painted um, i i love astronomy too matter of fact i love all aspects of science i said um <laughs> i have had all the all 
ologies you can think of. Entomology, insects, ichthyology, fish, mammalogy, mammals, ornithology, birds. You name it, I've had it. And so um, I've also taken a number of astronomy classes, and some of my favorite constellations are up here. And I, I want to also show, you know, if you're lost, um, how you find the North Star. So I want to I want to go over this. You yeah. see the bears. You see the Big Dipper and the Little right, Dipper, right? Uh, Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, and the Dipper, the 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 two stars on the far right of the of the um, pan, the dip, right. the dipper, are called the pointer stars. Right. So if you're anywhere in the northern hemisphere and you want to know where the north star is, you take your hand and you make a fist. And then you go, when you're outside, take the two pointer stars furthest away from the handle, and you go one, two, three, and it will point to Polaris, which is the tip of the dipper of the... Little Dipper. Little Dipper. Right. And that's the North Star. And see, and I so do it a little bit different because Cassiopeia is a great big W. Oh, yes. And so Cassiopeia and the Big Dipper, when you come out of the Dipper, yep. the handle points straight over to Cassiopeia. Oh. And right in the middle is the North Star. Oh, that's cool. But if it's an overcast night, you need to blow a lot up into the sky to get them clouds yeah, to separate yeah. so you can see it. That's right. <sighs> That's awesome. And I also like like Orion because right. Canis Major, you know, is, is uh, the dog biting at the heels of Orion the hunter. And, you know, and the Milky Way, you know, you can see a lot of times the Milky Way coming up. And right. I'm, I'm a Scorpio, so I had to put Scorpio up there. So, but yeah, yeah. so I, I... This is a neat display. I, I don't really understand how they got the animals out of... Uh, the stars the way that they are. I've always tried to figure that one out. About the closest I can figure out is Orion. Oh, I know. But the rest of them, uh, and the Big Dipper, right. and the W, but I yeah. don't know how you get Cassiopeia out of W. Well, she's sitting on a reclining <laughs> chair. She's, think of her sitting on a reclining chair. Okay. You know, she's a queen, and she has her knees up, and her. she's kind of bent a little bit in a W. Okay. That's how I envision it. You know what's so cool that I learned not too long ago? What's that? You know, God named some of the constellations. Did really? You know that? Nope. It's Tell me a story. Bible. Yeah. So it, he named um, Orion the hunter. He named um, the bear. Um, and he named Pleiades. And so it, it's in the Bible. Well, so. astrology's been around, astronomy. Uh-oh, now I'm getting my two mixed up. Which one's the study of the stars, not the... Astronomy. Astronomy, right. Okay. Astronomy's been around forever. I mean, yeah. way, way before we, as modern man, they were using the stars to navigate, to tell seasons oh, and everything else. I mean, you look at a lot of those old structures... And they knew exactly when the sun was going to be shining through the window in order to illuminate uh, something so that they knew when their seasons were. The Native Americans were all uh, astronomers. Absolutely. And yeah, and now we think that it's some sort of great science, but I don't think we have half the knowledge that they had I, I would agree. 500 years ago. 100%. In fact, hand, hand 90% of the, of the captains of ships or surveyors or anything else uh, Sexton 
and uh, a compass and tell them to point out which way they're supposed to go and I'll bet most of them would be lost because they only understand GPS. Exactly, exactly. So I would, I would totally <coughs> agree with you. I think, as I, I, think as, I think as we get smarter and we get more technology, we, we get lose. Dumber. We get dumber as <laughs> yeah. far as common sense and the ability I, to, I totally to agree. do things. And I don't know what's. I guess that if we have a major reset, which I think we've had resets in the past, I think if we have a major reset, you have to go back and relearn absolutely everything. How long yeah. does it take to develop a sextant? I know. I know. To understand how to where you're sailing. I know. You know? I, I, and yet those guys did it every single night. They sat out on their ships and they figured out exactly where they were, longitude, latitude, and they knew where they were going. I, I don't believe Columbus was lost when he found America. No. He wasn't lost. He just didn't know where he was. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I would agree. Well, let's start with my little cubbies here. So Okay. So what I've done um, in in all my science classes, we do a lot of taxonomy where you classify the organize organisms and so um, I've classified various groups of organisms and you'll see this is the fish group right here and on the right side are pictures I took of fish um, off the Oregon coast on the left side are pictures I took of fish in the tropics. Okay. Um, and just so you start becoming familiar with that, and you'll notice here there's a picture of one of my grandsons, Luke. I took him on a paleontology dig. Um, to Kemmer, Wyoming. I did. Because that's the only place that Kemmer, Wyoming is the only place that has these fish fossilized, and you can go out and dig them from their quarry. Absolutely, and I, I love them. And you'll notice the perfect preservation of the fish. Oh, yes. And even this one fish, look at, um, this is not from Kemmerer, but notice this fish that even has the scales still it on does. its body. It does. So, I mean, I, I want you to keep this in mind that, you know, here we have fossilized fish and modern day fish and they look the same. So just kind of keep that in the back of your mind for a minute. Okay. So we're going to come up here to the next group of organisms. Um, these are called the echinoderms. It's actually phylum echinodermata. And you'll notice these posters that I have. I did those myself. And, um, and I want to share with as many people as possible, including my marine biology students. That's what I initially did these for. You were probably but, a really good teacher. Oh, <laughs> I, I love my students. I, I, I love to teach and I love my students. I mean, the hands-on that I can see going on in your class would just be phenomenal. Yeah, I, tons of hands-on. I mean, like I said, <clears throat> almost all this I use for my classes. I bought it off my own money. And then so when I left, you know, I, I could take it. Um, never knew I was going to open a museum, but, <laughs> but anyhow. So with echinoderms, echinoderms, for, um, first of all, are sea stars. Um, so some people say starfish, but that confuses people because they think it's a fish. It's not. So the technical term now is sea stars and then sea urchins, sea cucumbers, sea lilies, sand dollars, and brittle stars. So when you are looking at all these groups, I've put here characteristics that um, are unique to this group. And as we go through each of these cubbies, there's going to be characteristics that are unique only to this group, okay? Only. 
only. Okay. So first of all, vascular, water vascular system to move. If you are a sea star or a sea urchin, you suck water in your body and you have all these kind of um, canals and everything. And eventually what happens, it pumps water through all these canals. Eventually um, with hydro hydraulic pressure, pushes out the tube foot and then they can move. So basically a jet motor. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like how a boat pushes yep. itself or, yep. or an airplane yep. pushes itself because of, of the difference in pressure Absolutely. pushing out. Okay. So so that's really cool, and you can see here how that water vascular. You'll see five-sided radial symmetry, and most echinoderms have parts in fives. Okay. Okay? And so when you see them, it's, you know, everything is in mostly in fives. And then the endoskeleton, which is called the what? Urchin, or the test. The test. I failed. Yeah, very good, <laughs> test. And so these tests are, are very, very fragile, um, as are many other parts. And I'm gonna have you hold one later, and you'll see that one of, one of them is, is heavy, like a rock, and the other one's light as a feather. So as you're looking at my exhibit, you will see, for example, with these hard urchins, the ones on the left are rock. They're okay. heavy as can be, and the ones on the right are modern day. Now, do they look the same? They look very, very similar, yeah. yes. Yeah, yes. They're, they're almost identical. Almost, yes. Yeah, and look at here. Look at my sand dollars here. Do you notice the brown sand dollars? Right. And then the white ones? Right. Well, the brown ones are fossilized, and the white ones are modern day. Oh. And, and I've seen ones fossilized heavy. ones that are actually rock and highly polished that are just absolutely beautiful. Oh, they're beautiful. gorgeous. Yeah. And they're heavy, they right? Are. Oh, yeah. So how many sand dollars do you actually find whole on the beach? Not very many. Not very many. Because you find happens? a lot of seagulls where there's parts of them. That's right. That's a western gull, by the way. Oh, okay. The western gull. Yeah, remember that? Yeah, you told trip? me that on the trip. Yes. Oh, you flunked that part too, See? <laughs> That's just the way it goes. <laughs> so anyhow, with, um, with the sand dollars, um, they get broken up very easily because they, um, the waves hit them and everything else. But you notice all these fossilized ones, they're, they're whole, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to get to that in a moment. Same with the sea biscuits, fossilized in modern day. You'll see that all the sea urchins, you have modern day and you have fossilized tests. You see that with the brittle stars. And brittle stars are so brittle. I mean, even when they're living, I hold them. It's like, oh, I don't want you to break anything off. And, and they'll they'll many times break tips of their their arms off and, and they'll regenerate them. But I'm like, oh, I want to be so careful with you. But you notice that with the brittle stars, notice perfect preservation. Do you see the fossils? Right. Perfect mm -hmm. preservation. Do you see any broken arms? No. No. And same with the sea stars. You see perfect preser preservation. Mm -hmm. And with what are called the sea lilies here, modern day and fossilized, perfect preservation. So, so when you're looking at this stuff, you know, if you're a person who has a lot of common sense, it was like, hmm, they look the same, right? I see that with my eyes. I see it with my right. eyes, they look the same. And my common sense tells me 
They didn't change. Okay. It's obvious that they haven't. I mean, all the designs are, are so similar that you yeah. couldn't tell the difference. Yeah. They're, uh, yeah, they're very similar. So there's, I was inundated with evolution in all my classes. Right. Evolution has changed over time. And the thing about evolution is they say that there is some um, beginning ancestor of every living thing on this earth. So using my common sense and looking at my collections, I'm like, eh, I don't believe that. I never have. And this is the reasons why. First of all, there are absolutely no transitional forms. When you hear in the paper or hear on the web about, oh, we found a new transitional form, they really did not find a transitional form. They did not find a form that was halfway between, say, an echinoderm and a fish. Right. Because in, in the evolutionary tree, echinoderms lead up to the fish. Have you ever seen part of a sea star and part of a fish? That, no. No, no. Have you ever seen part of one organism and part of another organism of anything? No. Of anything? No. Let me ask you this. So, bacteria. Let's go to bacteria. Bacteria is very tiny. Okay? And there's three kinds of bacteria. The bacillus, you know, the rod shape, and then the coccyx and the spirillium. Okay. Okay? And so, when you're sick, you get... Um, all this bacteria reproducing asexually. Um, do you think even a rod type of bacteria will turn into a coccyx, a round bacteria? No. No. If it's But the scientists will tell you that that doesn't happen, and yet they tell you that it does happen. Aren't they speaking out both sides of their mouth? They are. And the thing is, if in fact there were true evolutionary forms... You know, you would see a number of transitional forms going up through the fossil record. You see none. Zero. You can see artists making them. Right. But in reality, if you go and you really look at the true data and the true specimens, that is not the case. And I think this is one of the biggest hoaxes that, that we're trying to... Um, give our students and our children and, and even adults because evolution in itself does not work. Number one, no transitional forms. Number two, if you start with a, a like something, um, a small ancest ancestral cell, you know, uh, like an amoeba, let's just say like amoeba-like organism, okay, and an amoeba-like organism now changes um, into a sponge and the sponge you know, up the evolutionary tree will change into a coral and on up the line. The thing is, it's you have all these gaps. You have the various phyla, you have the endpoints, but you never find the points in the middle. You, you have the endpoints, right. but you can't fill in those gaps with the transitional forms because we never find them. Because, a couple other things, when we go from... Um, something that is more simplistic to something more complex, more ordered, um, it goes against the second law of thermodynamics. 
Think for one second. Things in nature break down. Would you guys agree? Would you agree yeah. with that? Yeah, oh yeah. How many of you have ever put, say, spaghetti in the refrigerator and left it in there for three weeks? Right. Mm -hmm. You get the, the mold and the mildew on it and it breaks down and everything else. Well, it always breaks down to its constituent elements. It doesn't build up into a better spaghetti, it breaks down. You put a car in the field. What's gonna happen after 20 years putting a car in the field? It's gonna deteriorate. It's gonna deteriorate. Right. It's gonna break down. Right. Second law of thermodynamics. Things go from a state of order to disorder, okay? They don't go from disorder to order. Okay, you can't, you can't take something and blow it up like the Big Bang and now have order. Right, right, right. You have right. disorder, okay? And so, so the thing is, is the second law of thermodynamics, that's a law. That's a law. That's something we can see all the time. We can see it at work. And when they say that things become more complex, um, it's like, I don't believe that. Another reason is smaller organisms, like say for, spon for example, sponges, very, a very simplistic organism, but still lots of um, simplistic complexity into it. So you're gonna have um, a genome, you know, the number of, of, um, of nitrogenous bases in a sponge that will be a lot less than would be in like a human. And there's only four bases. In the DNA, there's four bases. There's called adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine. And in the DNA strand, A always bonds with T. Remember at, A goes with T and C with G. My name is Carrie, my mom's name is Grace. So I always said Carrie Grace, CG go together, AT to go together. And so, do you have these to come together and that forms the DNA. So if you are a sponge, you're not gonna have a lot of the base pairs. You know, I, I can't, I don't know the genome off my head. Let's just say, let's just say a sponge has a hundred, a genome of a hundred, okay? So humans, much more complex. How are you gonna gain that extra DNA? How are you gonna get those extra um, base pairs, the adenine, the thymine, the guanine, and the cytosine? Should I run around with a DNA net? Should I run around <laughs> here and try to grab them from the air? It doesn't work that way. And when mutations occur, you know, they say that evolution occurred with two major means happening. First of all, they said survival of the fittest. I agree. I right. see it all the time. You know, the most, uh, the, the, the most fit organism will survive. I see that. Right. I 100% agree with that. Second of all, they say you need adaptive mutations. Don't see it. Can you think of any adaptive mutations? So when that adenine and guanine and cytosine and thymine, you know, you have the A and the T and the C and the G, when they replicate, Sometimes they repeat the, the, the pairs. Let's say we have an ATCG. And then all of a sudden now we have, when we replicate it, we inserted one too many. Now we have two ATCGs. And that duplicates things. 
it's going to cause a bad mutation. You know, it's, it could cause a disease. Um, it could cause a lot of bad diseases have been caused by errors in replication of the DNA. So you do not see those adaptive mutations. You, I don't know of any. I always ask my students, I said, find me a case of an adaptive mutation to prove to me that evolution occurs. Well, if this has been going on for thousands or millions or trillions of years like they try to tell us, you would think that it would still be continuing today and you would see a half starfish, half sea urchin, or you would see a half human, half horse or whatever, because we're in the process of, but that's not the way it works. No. no. All we see is humans, right. horses, dogs, yeah. and horses and donkeys. Uh, horses and donkeys can interbreed, but they yes. produce an offspring they can't breed. Exactly. I mean, so uh, the mutation can't continue on at a certain point. Right. Yeah. And so the thing is, the, the only one that I know that has a little bit of an um, adaptive mutation is sickle cell anemia. It is, is caused from a genetic mutation and the cells are sickle celled, you know, like a sickle, right. um, crescent moon shape, um, but you don't get malaria. So the part you don't get malaria, that's good. You know, so you could say, oh, that's an adaptive mutation. And I said that in one of my classes. And one of my students actually had a student with sickle cell anemia. She said, Carrie, how dare you? How dare you say that sickle cell anemia is an adaptive mutation? She said, my daughter who has it has so many other problems. She says, yeah, she doesn't get malaria, but she has all these other problems because of that genetic mutation. She said, and so I, I quit saying that. I said, well, you know, I had to rephrase how I said that. So when they talk about evolution, um, they put some truth in some parts of it, but non-truth in other parts of it. So, so people get confused. They, it's like, well, yeah, I, I see survival of the fittest happening all the time. It's like, well, so do I. But how many times do you see adaptive mutations occurring? Zero. Um, and so... What about adaptive mutations inside of a species? Like, let's say a moth, because I saw something one time, that's the reason I'm picking on the moth, where the moths that were hanging out in trees that were really brown were all brown, whereas moths that were hanging out in another tree uh, that were lighter... Were picked off. Uh, were, were picked off uh, because they, they, they were too light. They were easily seen. So they, they ended up adapting to where the lighter, the darker moths didn't hang out on the lighter trees. But the right. you, you, you're following what I'm saying, know, even I, though it's I all know, messed up. I know, that <clears throat> I know that study. So let me ask you this. Is that truly, is that adaptation? Or survival of the fittest. Or is that a, a genetic mutation? Think about this. Survival of the fittest, an, an adaptation. Right. Okay, which is the same adaptation. You already have it in your genes. It's already pre-programmed in your genes. You've just had it selected for. You were, it was selected for because if I'm a white moth on a dark bark, it's going to be easier for the birds to pick me off. So now I'm, you're picking off all the white ones and all the darker ones are staying because the birds can't see them as well. So now the 
the darker ones are going to reproduce, reproduce more. Reproduce, right. Survive of the fittest, right? Because right, they're more exactly. fit because they're darker. It's an adaptation. It's already in the genes. So it, it, it wasn't a mutation. It was an adaptation. And so many people confuse adaptations with mutations. Okay. Uh, mutations are bad, you know. Right. A lot of them but are adaptations bad. But adaptations aren't. I mean, so many times, you know, things adapt to their environment because they have to. Well, humans are the same way. I mean, you've got people with dark skin yeah. living in, in hot places and yeah. people with light skin living in Absolutely. Uh, the far north, you know, yeah. the Netherlands and, and so, such. Yeah. So, so the first thing, you know, I want you to think that, I want you to kind of rethink that evolution thing because, you know, we really don't have the proof for it that scientists say we do. And another thing, like in all the geology classes I've had, and I've had so many, you know, they would say that it takes fossils millions of years to fossilize, um, and it, you know, and they, they say that, you know, they're different and, and all this, but as you see, I have an extensive collection of fossils. But let me ask you something. If it would take millions of years to fossilize something, do you think that sand dollar would break up in that process? You would think. You would think. And I'll have you hold some of the very light tests, and they're so fragile. It had to occur quick. And it could have. I mean, with with and, with geological earthquakes, and, uh, I, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. And volcanoes and and other things that that happen. I could well, see. Well, well, even even uh, uh, tsunamis. You know, yep. you could have a big influx of water coming into an area. And, and you're getting to the point I'm going to get to here in a minute. So let's go okay. to the next next group. Okay, we're getting to the next group. So, by the way, these each one of these displays is totally fascinating outside of our creation evolution uh, discussion. They're fascinating in their own right, but this conversation is one that I've always wanted to have. I've tried to get uh, podcasts at a couple of creation-specific museums that have really cool stuff, but they won't do a podcast with me because they're afraid I'm going to destroy them uh, when, I, when I edit. And I, I find the conversation fascinating, and I'm interested from your academic, science-based education as to what's going on here. This is, this is an education. Oh, good, good. Well, I always, I always <clears throat> back it up with evidence. I mean, when people um, come at me, I'll show them the evidence. I mean, how can they dispute evidence that they can see with their own eyes? Right. So, And whether you're so, taking it from a creation standpoint or a this is the way it is, uh, it still disproves evolution. Yeah, evolution, um, yeah, evolution is a hoax. It's, 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 I feel it's the worst thing that has happened in science and ultimately has um, caused many other problems in our country. And I yet think. it's a pervasive uh, point of view through all of your all of yeah. your uh, ologies, every it, single ology, absolutely, it, it's, it's a pervasive uh, influence. So here we have the arthropoda, crab, shrimp, lobsters, barnacles, trilobites, and 
some unique characteristics here. They have an exoskeleton that they molt. Right. Okay. And then they have a compound eye. And there's a little thing. Take a look in that. So oh, have yeah. you ever tried to kill a fly and it scoots away? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, they have all these little segments. Okay. Oh, and you they, already uh, looked. Okay. Oh, yeah. And they can, they can see. They have great peripheral vision. And so that's unique. I mean, that's unique with these arthropods. And so, and, and with an exoskeleton, I always say it's like, well, if I was a crab, you know, here I am, you know, I'm, I have my external clothes and I'm gaining weight. So now it's like, oh, I got to put on a, a, a bigger, you know, sweatshirt, whatever. I'm kind of like, I'm like a crab. Right. I'm growing a new exoskeleton that's bigger that I can grow into, which I don't want to grow into. <laughs> but, um, but anyhow, I got to tell you a, a neat story. So I'd always do mini experiments with my students. So one time we had a hermit crab, and it was a female hermit crab. And so if you hold them upside down, a lot of times they'll come out of their shell, which I never do unless it's, I'm doing an experiment. So I held this one upside down, well, one of my students did. And we had four other shells, and we wanted to see which one she would choose. Would she go back into the one she came out of or choose one of the other four? And we had different sizes. So we had one slightly bigger than the one she was in, bigger than that, bigger than that, bigger than that. And so she came out, and we knew she was a she because she was brooding eggs. And she went to the first one, and she stuck her legs in, and she tried to pull it up. It's like getting into a very tight pair of jeans. <laughs> and just like, this is not going to work. And she discarded that one. And then she went to the second biggest one. And she was pulling it up. And she got it over part of her abdomen. And it's like, uh, too tight. And she got rid of that one. And then she went to the third one. And... And I'm narrating this the whole time, by the way. It's like, oh, yeah, that's me, you know, trying to try those tight jeans on, and they don't fit, you know. And so, so then she goes to the next one, and she got it on. And it's like, well, yeah, this will do, but, you know, I kind of want a little more room. You know, I'm going to get bigger. I have these babies. So she got rid of that. Then she took the biggest shell. It's like, oh, yeah, nice big one. It's like, oh, I'm nice and comfy here. So... It was hilarious, you know, watching this hermit crab where she was going and trying all these shells. Because, you know, with hermit crabs, um, they have to have another shell in order to survive. So, anyhow, I just wanted to sh side point on that one. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a cute, true story. So, I want you to look here at the diversity of crabs, and we have trilobites, which are now extinct. We have horseshoe crabs. We have shrimp. Um, but I want you to pay particular attention to this purple lobster. Okay. You see the purple lobster, and you see the fossilized lobster. Yeah. On that fossilized slab, do you see antennae? Yep. Yeah. Do you see pinchers? Yep. Yeah. The compound eye, and even on the shrimp. Right. You see all the parts, right? Somehow or another, I see purple in the stone. Yeah, it kind of looks a little brownish purple. <laughs> so you see this one. You see that one. Look at this one right here. Do you see this crab? Yeah. Um, 
you see the pink one, and then behind it, you see the one that has its right. pinchers out, like this, like it, it like it, it died right when it was ready to attack, like Pompeii. You've seen right, right, from right, Pompeii. Yeah. Well, and all of these, you look at the actual fossil. You're seeing it with your own eyes, right? Right. Does your common sense tell you that it took millions of years for that to fossilize, or does your common sense say? It happened quickly. It happened quickly. Yeah, because if you are a crab and you're along the beach, and even if you just died, what's that? What's one wave going to do to your antennae and your pinchers and everything? It's going to tear you apart. It's going to tear you apart. Especially if there's western gulls around. That's because they don't leave a whole lot. That's right. <laughs> but do you see that in any of the the fossils here? No, they're complete. They're complete. Mm -hmm. Do you see the trilobites? Yeah. Look right. at the spines and the trilobites. Right. Perfectly. So let's talk about how this could have occurred. Okay? So I believe 100% in Noah's Ark's flood. Okay. Okay? I believe the earth was created 6,000 years ago by God. I believe God created one of each type of creature. And I believe that over time it's diversified into, like, look at all the crabs. Hundreds and thousands of different species of crabs. But, you know, he probably created one, but he gave the genetic variability within the DNA to adapt to so many different environments. Okay? So, so that, that's, you know, we can look at the genealogies in the Bible about 6,000 years ago. Is that the same thing as evolution within species? That's microevolution. Microevolution, I believe in microevolution. That's where things adapt mm -hmm. within their groups. Mm -hmm. So that's, you can call that microevolution, not macro. Macro is when you change from huge groups, like I changed from Phylum Arthropoda to Phylum Echinodermatis. Something, yeah. Something right. totally different. Yeah. These are still within the same group. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, they have the, the, the diversity. Yes. Yeah. I Each guess. one, you know, say you had one shrimp put on this earth and one crab, you know, um, one trilobite, but there was enough genetic diversity put in the DNA that it could adapt to all the environments mm -hmm. that it encountered over time. And so. When you are looking at this, um, first of all, you see that, but you also see evidence of the flood. So notice um, the flood, again, you have lots of evidence through not only the Bible, but many, many, many cultures. I mean, cultures that don't believe in God, they talk about a great flood. Oh, yeah. About 45 to 4,600 years ago, um, there was a great flood. Okay, mm -hmm. I personally believe it was Noah's flood, but like I said, if just do research, just do research. Cultures all over the world talk about a great flood. Now, envision this for one second. So you had um, the fountains of the deep, you know, breaking the continents apart. You had probably Pangaea all together because right. at one time it was one big continent. Now the fountains of the deep are causing plate tectonics to occur and pushing that away and, you know, a lot of volcanic activity. Um, you had, you know, uh, rain coming from above, you know, 
water coming from below, all kinds of stuff was happening. And, all, and this happened for a year. The flood, floodwaters were on the earth for a year. So think about big mountains, okay? Think about, for example, if you ever read about how the Columbia River was formed. Lake Missoula, um, the dam burst, and the floodwaters from Lake Missoula came down, rushed down, and scoured out uh, lots of um, parts of Idaho and Washington and eventually formed the Columbia River Gorge, which is gorgeous. Right. Um, but, I mean, that was, that was quick. But now, think about this for a moment. You have some mountains. For a year, you have floodwaters just tearing these mountains apart. You have big boulders that were ripped off these mountains, okay? And now they're churning up. They're, they're tumbling and tumbling and tumbling. What's going to happen to the size of those? Is it? They're going to shrink. They're going to shrink. They're going to get and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and round up. Yep. And eventually, they'll become pieces of sediment. Would you right, agree? Right. Oh, we yeah. see this today. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have evidence of this today. We mm -hmm. see it all the time. Now, after a year, the floodwater subsided. Okay? Now, when they subsided, keep in mind, there's a lot of... You couldn't take the marine organisms on the, on the ark, right? Why the would you? Yeah. They're in the ocean. Right. So the crabs, the clams, the shrimp, the sea stars, all of that, they were still in the water. And now you have this huge sediment load. They're immediately covering them. And boom, they're still alive. They're still alive. And they're being covered. They're smothered when they're still alive. Mm -hmm. That, look at this. There's no other way. If these would have died, they would have broken apart. But no, even this crab that has this, it's fossilized, it has its pinchers up. Mm -hmm. It was fossilized and was still alive. Yeah. Does that make sense? Can we go further than that? Sure. Have you ever heard the theories of the mud floods? That every so often the earth shakes or whatever and it creates mud that oh. just covers everything? It's, no. it's, a, it's, a, it's a theory that's coming out pretty strong uh, in the conspiracy world. But uh, yes, Linda. But that could have happened during the flood when the waters were receding. It could have happened at any point in time. We have yeah. Mount St. Helens that blew up in 1980 mm -hmm. that dumped massive amounts of, of sediment into the Columbia River, the ash and everything else. What could, have, what could have been fossilized in the 1980s all the way down the Columbia River out into the ocean from just that one event? Yeah. And, I and, mean, and this stuff goes on all the time. Yeah, uh, but the thing... and, and The Sahara I, Desert has been ocean three times, I think, in its history, where it's been completely covered, and they find artifacts from people that moved with the water as it was receding until it became the desert again. Yeah. And then it floods again. I mean, they've got recorded evidence of this happening. So Noah's flood is just one event that could have done a lot of this. But I think I we think, have events I in our own lifetimes that uh, could have done the same things. Yeah. So well, on, on much smaller scales. Much smaller scale. Yeah. Right. I, believe, I believe most of the fossils that we see like in my collection and any museum I've gone to, most of them were caused during Noah's flood. Okay. I believe that. And some of them, yes, are still forming. 
And I wonder but, how long it really takes to fossilize when I look at, at Glass Beach and I see all of that garbage fossilized yeah. because yeah. <clears throat> it's all in the stone uh, from the water and the elements. I know. And it's all a conglomerate of glass and metal and rope and just tons of stuff from the garbage that they were dumping into the ocean. Yeah, exactly. It's all coralized, I guess is what I'd call it, but it's it, that's basically a fossil. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we're going to jump into the next group. We're okay. going to jump into phylum mollusca. And phylum mollusca, um, these are like the snails, the clams, the squid, the octopus, nudibranchs. Um, Nautilus. Um, Nautilus, yep. Nautilus, fossilized ammonites, so all kinds of cool things. This is probably my favorite phylum overall. And I love the cephalopods. Cephalopods are squid, octopus, cuttlefish. Ammonites, Nautilus. So the thing that characterizes a mollusk is mantle tissue. Have you guys ever eaten calamari? Right. And clams? Squid, right. Yeah. Okay, clam. you've eaten the mantle tissue. Okay. That's the characteristic of a mollusk. There's other characteristics. You know, a lot of them have shells, but not all of them. But the mantle tissue. Okay. okay. So I want you to think for one moment about eating a clam. Have you ever cooked clams? Oh yeah. Okay, so when the clam is living, I have in my hand right now a butter clam. So when this butter clam is living, is it gonna be shut like this or is it gonna be open? It's gonna be open. When it's living. When it's living? Don't they, don't they, no, no, the neck comes out in order to get their food. Yeah. Okay, so it'd be closed. It'd be closed. When because they don't want to be open because a predator would eat them. Right, right. So they want to be closed. But the siphon comes out. Right, okay. Right? The siphon comes out. So, so anyhow, you have your siphon, and that's for feeding, um, breathing, and excreting. Okay? Now, when you cook clams, what happens when you cook a clam? They open up. They open up. Right. Okay? So... There is a beach down here, Beverly Beach. Right. You, you we stayed there. there. Right. And I've collected tons of fossils off that beach. That's okay. a really cool beach. It's a very cool There's beach. There's some really interesting rock formations as you get down toward Dequina Head. Absolutely. Yeah. So I want you to look at the clams that you all have in your hands. Okay. Now, what do you see about these clams? Are they opened or are they shut? Shut. I'd say they're partially open. Well, they're mostly shut. Right. That's a, that's some sediment in there. Right. So, but but they're they're they're, they're pretty shut. much shut. Okay. You can see a tiny bit of the sediment, but they're 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 shut tight. Okay. So, Lauren, you just told me that when a clam dies, it opens up. Right. Okay. So if these were fossilized, and they're shut, they were fossilized when they were what? Live. Still alive. How else would have you had all these clams being shut? Because if they would have died, they would have been open. But that's more evidence that they were very quickly covered with sediment, with floodwaters, and they died when they were still alive. Or else they would have, all clams open up when they die. Now, could this have happened, just as a curiosity standpoint, could this have happened with the tides? Because I know... Like your shipwrecks, they 
end up the Peter Iredale. I just saw a video of mm -hmm. somebody that had taken a drone footage, <clears throat> and you can see the whole Peter Iredale out there. But yet, when we go next week, we're only going to see the bow, right? Right. Because right. that uncovers and covers back up. Is it possible that these beds in a major storm or major tide flux uh, buried quickly, like in the oh. oyster beds or something like that, and, and remain that way for, for a month or they, a period of time? They, they could, but, but you have to have the right conditions. Right. And, but I, I, I'm always open to well, I'm just yeah. thinking right conditions yeah. could right be conditions. at any point in time, yeah. depending on what kind of environmental issue is going on. Right, right. But we have fossilized clams like this <clears throat> all over the world. Right. And right. Uh, even Mount Everest has, you know, you have uh, marine life fossilized on Mount Everest. We have so. it on top of the bighorns in Wyoming. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah. corals and, and all of that up there. And even like, look at your ammonites versus your nautilus shell. Right. They all have chambers. And in a modern day nautilus shell, they have a tube that connects all the chambers. So they suck water in if they want to sink. They pull water out if they want to go up and fill it with gases in okay. each chamber. So we don't know for sure because we didn't see nautilus when they were living, but probably they did the same thing. Right. They still had the chambers and everything else. <clears throat> so... On these, but, they were covered up and they couldn't escape. Yes, exactly. Yeah. A lot of sediment. Right. Yep. So. Wow. This is too cool. Yeah. So, I can put those in my pocket. <laughs> Thank you. Um, also, I want to show you one other cool thing. One of my neatest things in here is a blue ring octopus. Yes. Um, that's found in the tide pools of Australia. They don't get any bigger than that, they're smaller than the palm of your hand. They can kill a person in three minutes. Really? See it's the got stings or? Yeah, it has a venom with its beak. It beaks you. So it has to, it ha it'd have to be kind of sprawled out on you in order mm -hmm. to sting you? Yep. Okay. Yep. <clears throat> Not real often, So, but sometimes. Um, phylum Nideria, these are the jellies, the sea anemones, the corals, hydroid colonies, sea fans, and gorgonians. Um, again, Lots of diversity here, lots of diversity in the corals, fossilized and modern-day corals. You can see them side by side. Um, I mean, I could spend hours talking just about cnidarians, but they're, um, they're two unique, three unique things is they have stinging cells called nematocysts, and that's why... You know, you don't want to touch, like, the Portuguese man of war or anything. Right. Um, even if you touch a giant green sea anemone, when you touch it, it sticks to you. That's because the barbs are actually stinging your finger. But you can't, um, you know, it's hard to feel. Right, right. Um, and then also, um, you know, you have the giant green, which has um, symbiotically within its tentacles, it has a type of um, green algae. That's what makes it green. So if you put it in the cave, guess what happens to the green color? Yeah, because the um, zooxanthellae, the, the green algae, leave. Zooclorella and zooxanthellae. Wow. Yeah. So again, it doesn't, um, there's a theory in evolution that two organisms lived in each, each other and that formed another organism. No, it's just a mutualistic um, arrangement where 
you know, if you have algae living in your tentacles, the algae's making the food, but now they have a home to live in. Right. And the, now the sea anemone is getting free food because it's providing a home for the algae. It's mutualism. So uh, same thing with corals. I mean, there, there's just so much. But they also have um, the polyp and medusa form. So if you're a sea anemone and you're a polyp, I want all you guys to act like a polyp. Put your mouth and your arms up in the air. Now you're a polyp. You're a sea anemone. Now bend down. You're the medusa form. Your tentacles and your mouth are, are underneath. Now you're the medusa form. In my marine biology class, I go polyp, arms up, mouth up, medusa, <laughs> arms down, mouth down. And so that's characteristic. You have those two forms, and then also you have a blind sac. So if you're a giant green sea anemone, or, or if you are a jelly, everything goes in one end and comes out the same end. How would you like eating and pooping out of the same orifice? Not really. No, no. So, so anyhow, uh, a little bit about Nidarians. And that puts a strange twist on the word life cycle. Exactly. <laughs> And then the last one here is phylum periphera. Periphera has pores. Um, pores in our bodies made either of spongy, fill that, Lauren, squishy. Right. And spicules are, are hard. hard. Okay. And they filter feed with these collar cells. So they, um, they have these tiny little cells. Their whole body's made up of, um, oh, maybe half a dozen types of cells. They're, they're based, they're cellular based. Their whole body, they don't have tissues, you know, they don't have organs. But they're still very, um, you know, they've been around forever. They haven't changed into anything. A sponge is a sponge. But they, they have um, just single cells that work together to form their functions. Uh, matter of fact, one of the experiments we do, we take a living sponge, we take a screen, we'd squish it through a screen, it disassociates into its individual cells, and they come together on the other side. Oh, really? Yeah. Very wow. cool. So, so again, you know, you see that. And a fossilized sponge looks just like the modern day. That's a big sponge. Yeah, the giant barrel sponge. That is so cool. Yeah, I've seen them diving. They're six foot tall and weigh 180 pounds and a lifespan of 2,300 years. Yep. That's a big sponge. It is a big sponge. So well, let's run you up. You probably need to keep Excuse those me. in check, otherwise the ocean would just dry up. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's run upstairs. Let's look at a few other rooms. This is extremely fascinating from the aspect of you can go to the aquarium, and like I said earlier, I think, you can see all these animals live, but when you come here, you can see them fossilized. You can see the internals. The It's just such a neat display, the way that you have this displayed. It gives a whole different uh, idea of what's going on with all of these things. And not only that, if you are a creationalist, it supports that very well. If you're not a creationalist, there's still a lot of cool stuff to see. If you wanna, if you wanna go down the evolution route, and that's the only way it can be, you don't present this in like a necessarily creation aspect, it's still very palatable to people that believe something different. So I, I find this to be a very nice museum from that aspect. Oh, thank you. And I, I do want, I do want people to think, think, 
and use your common sense and what do your eyes show you. And that's right. why when I was explaining about the cubbies, I mean, I get a number of people who believe in evolution. It's like, you know, that's what they want to believe. Let them believe that. But I, I want them to think about some of the aspects I've mentioned to them. We should all be challenged. Always. Always challenged. I'm always being challenged by other people. And it makes me think more. And it makes me do more research. And then I feel I become a, a better um, teacher because I... You've worked through the problems. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No. Because uh, I you think have it's... to see both sides of it to understand truly right you know the pros and the cons yes i love being challenged on things me and, too because it makes me think and i think that this museum presents it that way to where people that are evolutionists can be challenged but at the same time you seem open enough to have them challenge you absolutely and, and it's Anytime. all here whatever you want to take from it you can take from it yep if you can learn even one thing if you can learn the difference between a seal and a sea lion there you go <laughs> and that's and we were on the trip today and you saw I that. have ears I have ears okay <laughs> and these are these are posters I made so we're in the pinniped room pinnipeds are seal sea lions and walruses and I also have some otters in here so let me first of all talk about sea lions you'll notice this mural these are life-size so we saw the harbor seal and we saw the stellar sea lions um, and these are life-size um, California sea lions are in Newport. Elephant seals, there's more of them in California. So the big thing, sea lions have ear flaps, okay? As you can see here, seals have holes behind their eyes, okay? Sea lions have these long front flippers, as you can kind of see, and they swim with those long front flippers. Seals have short front flippers, and they swim with their rear flippers, and we saw that. Um, we saw baby harbor seals, and they were glumping along because they cannot put their rear flippers underneath their body. We saw that. Um, we saw them, they do what's called a, a banana pose many times. And then California sea lions and stellar sea lions, which we saw the stellars, can put their rear flippers underneath their body, as you see with all my pictures. Okay. Okay? And so, so I want to, um, I love teaching people the difference between seals and sea lions because so many people don't know the difference. They'll call a seal a sea lion or a sea lion a seal. It drives me crazy. So I like to educate them. Same thing with otters. How do you tell a sea otter from a river otter? If you see one laying on their back hitting a clam, it's going to be a sea otter. If you see it on its belly, even if it is on the ocean, it has a long tail and it's chasing after a fish, it's going to be a river otter, okay? No, so, no. no, river otters don't. River otters, um, their fish eaters are fast. They're long, they're slim, they have a long tail. They can be in the ocean. I have a family of river otters living on my dock. Um, but sea otters are slow, they're clumsy, very clumsy on land. River otters are very quick on land. Uh, sea otters, you know, they're going for stationary food, you know, like clams, sea urchins. Um, abalone, stuff like that. Okay. Question? Yeah, they said that in uh, Newport that the sea otters were no longer existing in uh, Oregon. That is true. Although, that is true. I have seen them when I was younger. I mean, I grew up in Portland and we used to come down scuba diving down here on the coast around Tillamook and stuff when we'd go out on Barview Jetty. We used to see them all the time out there breaking uh, shells. Oh, really? Yeah, but, I've seen two. 
two sea otters here. So. Yeah. What, when did it. they become non-existent here? Most of them died out around the early 1900s because they were killing them for their fur. Because, see, I would have seen them in the late, well, probably like 76 yeah. or 85. Because we'd always, like I said, we'd go down and, and hang out at Barview Jetty. That was kind of our place to hang out. And I saw otters out there quite a bit, yeah. floating on their back. And, and they, were, they would be breaking okay. the... Yeah, I wasn't here so then. So I, it's, just, it's just interesting to yeah, me because... Yeah, there's, That they tried to reintroduce yeah, them for a while. They did try reintroducing them. Yep, but that didn't stick. They're going to try again here soon. So so if you're I, in Oregon and you see an otter, it's a river otter. Yes. <laughs> yes. Most likely. 98%. So you see in this display, I have um, stellar sea lions in the skull, California sea lion in the skull. Wow. Um, harbor seal in skull, river otter in skull. Uh, excuse me, sea otter and skull and river otter and skull. And then also up here, this is the extinct stellar sea cow, replica of the, the skull. The stellar sea cow was um, discovered in 1741 by George Willem Steller. And 27 years later, man caused its, its extinction in the Commander Islands up around Alaska. But we still have like manatees, and dugongs, which are relatives of um, the stellar sea cow. Matter of fact, um, one of my captains now, um, her name's Alyssa, her mom and dad run Crystal River Water Sports, and um, Alyssa worked for me in 2019, her and Colby, and then um, I actually got to be a captain and a naturalist working with them last winter in Florida, and now Alyssa and Colby are back with me here working this year. So in the winter now, I am working with manatees. That is and, cool. Yeah, and I love manatees too. I mean, they'll come right up to you within inches and, and they like to interact with you. And what's that outfit called in Florida? Crystal River Water Sports. Crystal River Water Sports. And what yeah. town is it near? Crystal River. Okay, where's Crystal River near? Crystal River to is, if you go about an hour due west of Orlando, Okay. You, you'll run into Crystal River. Okay. So it's on the Atlantic side, not on the Gulf side. Gulf. It's on the Gulf it's side. It's on the Gulf side. Okay. Go west. Okay. Okay. So. Wow. Let's go into the bird room here. Well, I've got a sister in Orlando that I may just have to go visit this oh. next winter. Oh, it's amazing. So there's a lot of... um. A lot of cool birds out there. I'm a big birder. I've been a birder for over 34 years. Uh, taught bird classes all those years. Um, the big thing that I told my students and I tell my people on the boat is there's no such thing as a seagull. There's western gulls and there's herring gulls and there's ring-billed gulls and there's mule gulls and laughing gulls. All kinds of gulls but no seagulls. Although they're bagels and they're, they're good oh. to eat. Well, I was going to say there's inland gulls, too, because yeah. every once in a while Ring you see them gulls. all the way in. Yeah. Uh, well, we saw a bunch in New Mexico this last oh, winter yeah. when we, we were there. And we yeah. have them in Ring, Wyoming. Ring in fact, gulls. They we have, have pelicans yeah. in Wyoming. White pelicans. Explain yeah. that. I, okay. You don't have to. I'm just, I'm just throwing that out okay. there as a what the heck. Yeah, I can tell you about <laughs> that, too. So, so anyhow, um, on the western gulls, they have a red dot. That red dot is a little puke button, 
And you can see here the red dot, those are the babies. That's a baby that's a little older. And so the babies come up to the red dot and they go peck, 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 and parents go, and babies oh. go, ooh, num, num, num. And so that's how the babies get food for sometimes up to a year. Parents don't like them to stay with them that long, but, but I have seen chicks going after their mothers when they're a year old. Wow. Um, and then we had the common mirrors. Um, I love mirrors. They're related to puffins. Uh, the dad um, takes care of the chick after the chick hatches. Mom takes off to the seafood buffet. Then dad feeds the chick for the next three months, as you can see in these pictures. And then we have... So do they mate for life? Um, yes. They will mate, well, for the season, and then they disperse. And they most, most of the time, the same pairs come back. Okay. Um, we saw pelagic cormorants with a white rump, brands cormorants. Um, I think we saw pelicans. We did see some brown, brown pelicans. pelicans, yes. So brown pelicans are in the ocean, white pelicans are on lakes. Okay. So white pelicans are inland, brown pelicans are ocean. So, which is cool. We've been seeing uh, lots of seagulls, and like, so we were wondering if there's like the white, or not seagulls, but... Gulls. Western gulls. Western gulls. <laughs> and... There's like the ones with white and the brown, and then there's ones with like brown and white kind of all over good, on them. Good good job, Haley. So so Western gulls take four years to become an adult. The first year they're all brown. Matter of fact, I have a display here that's covered. And so first year it's all brown. Uh, second year they're half brown, half white. And that one fell down. And third year. They look like an adult, but they have black on their bill. And then it's the fourth year that they actually get the red dot. And is it only the females that have the red dot? No, nope. both sexes. And both. so the chicks will feed off of the males yep. also? Yep. Wow. And, yep. and there again, they work as a parenting yep. crew? Yes. Okay. Yep. That's interesting. Oh, it is. So then if you walk through this little archway, you come into my dinosaur room. Please don't hit your head. So my dinosaur room, in about another, realistically, less than a week, I should have it totally done. Um, like I said, one of my degrees was with paleontology, so I absolutely love all fossils, especially fossil dinosaur stuff. You notice here, um, this is a fossilized dinosaur egg nest. Oh, wow. wow. Haley, I want you. Oh, drop it. Oh, wow. Heavy. Ooh. That even popped Ooh. my shoulder. Mm -hmm. It was heavy. That is heavy. <laughs> yeah. So that's three eggs. That's another dinosaur egg, real one, a real dinosaur footprint. So I got a lot of real stuff in here. Cool. Um, that's neat. Um, this is an ichthyosaurus. This is a fossilized reptile that kind of looks like a dolphin. But another way that we know that... Things we were, were. We were learning about those just the other day. Were we? Yes. Out in the desert. Them. Out in the desert. Oh, yeah, in yeah, Nevada, yeah, yeah. In Nevada. Mm -hmm. So this is an, a real vertebrae of an ichthyosaurus, and these are the real scales of an ichthyosaurus. Because wow. it was a reptile. Looks like a dolphin, though, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does. Mm -hmm. So what's so cool about the ichthyosaurus and the fossil record is... It was giving birth, and it got fossilized in the process of giving birth. And I've seen the actual fossil of that coming out of the birth canal 
was a baby ichthyosaurus. Really? Once again, that means it had to have happened fast. Like that, quick, yeah. Quick. So, so you see that. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of cool stuff. Um, and I have a, a reptile section. I'm actually going to add some real mammals in here. I'm going to do cover this and have little portholes. And I have a javelina, which is, of course, a mammal. But just so they can see some modern-day mammals in my little portholes. you got an armadillo, too. I have an armadillo, yep. He's Abrams. not even flat like the ones I see in Texas. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lot of fossilized um, poo here. You know how I like my poo. Mm -hmm. These are from all kinds of different Cropolite? species. Coprolite's very Coprolite. good. Yes, there we go. Okay. Good, good job. Now, something that... Um, a couple things. There's a couple reasons I did the dinosaur room. So number one, of course, I love dinosaurs in all aspects. But number two, um, there's a lot of misconceptions out there about dinosaurs right now. So many uh, museums and everything say that dinosaurs evolved into birds. Um, think about this. Again, using your common sense and what do your eyes tell you. So, if you are a dinosaur, first of all, let me tell you, dinosaurs and birds are side by side in the fossil record. So, I don't know how one could turn into another when they're already together, together in right. the fossil record. That's one, one issue. Second of all, um, they say that there's feathered dinosaurs. Well, there's a lot of, all the feathered dinosaurs are coming from a place in China, and they do a lot of fake stuff, I'll put it that way. Matter of fact, I took a picture of one of the so-called feathered dinosaurs down in the Natural History Museum um, in California, and I zoomed in on the feathers, and you could tell they were actually painted. And oh, really? So, yeah. And so, so I don't believe that, um, you know, a couple other things, again, using my common sense and my knowledge about birds, since I've taught birds for over 35 years. So birds are warm-blooded, okay? Reptiles are cold-blooded. Now, dinosaurs might have been what's called endothermic. Now, endothermic means they are cold-blooded, but there's mechanisms um, that will trap heat in their body that makes their their muscles more efficient and their, and their inside body temperature could be, you know, 10, 20, 30 times greater than the outside temperature. Okay. Great white sharks have this, mako sharks have this, um, tuna have this, swordfish have this, marlins have it. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, like they, antifreeze, yeah, and they, they can hold their um, heat within the, within their body and so make them, um, appear somewhat warm-blooded but again their their temperature still varies with the environment whereas home true homeothermic warm-blooded animals our temperature can only vary within a few degrees or else we get sick and right. die okay so dinosaurs were cold-blooded although they could have been endothermic working at a, um, a warmer temperature range whereas birds are Warm-blooded, because they have to, they have to be warm-blooded because it takes a lot of energy to fly. Second of all, reptiles like dinosaurs, um, to eat, 
they have their, you know, everything goes in one way, you know, down into their lungs, lost stagnant air in their lungs, it mixes, comes out, and, you know, maybe maybe up to 30% of, of the air is, is good new air, just like us. Right. Very similar to us. Birds, on the other hand, have a flow-through system, okay? It, they're much more efficient. It, it, you don't have all the stale air. So their, um, their ventilation system, their, their breathing is like, you know, 90 to 95% efficient new air. Really? You have to have that in order to fly because flying expends so much energy. So there's so many major differences. How could you take something cold-blooded and make it warm-blooded? How could you take something that had, had a breathing system you know, like a lizard, and change into breathe, breathing system like what a bird. bird. It, it, the transitional forms wouldn't survive, you know, if there were transitional right. forms. Um, plus, you know, the, the scales, and they'd say that the scales um, turned into feathers. Well, the scales and the feathers are two totally different layers of the skin. They're, they're not even together. I mean, and it, there's so many differences. I mean, it's just like day and night. Plus... Um, dinosaurs now, they're looking at um, the bones of dinosaurs and they're finding red blood cells in the bones like T-Rex femur, um, triceratop horns. There's so many new finds of dinosaurs being um, recently um, extinct, like like really recent, like within maybe a hundred years. There weren't dragon slayers 150, 200 years ago in all the nursery rhymes. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> well, I believe dragons were dinosaurs um, because the term dinosaur wasn't coined to the mid-1800s. Right. And previous to that, you know, they were called dragons. You look at some of the really, really old dictionaries, they talk about dragons as being living creatures. Right. And so, and all these different, um, you know, stories, you know, I think were based on truth. Uh, Gil Gilgamesh and, and numerous other ones, plus Marco Polo, Alexander the Great, they have talked in their log books about seeing dinosaurs. And there's so many types of um, records and, and, and artifacts that show that people and dinosaurs lived at the same time. I mean, like cultures all over the world, I mean, they've made um, paintings. There's a painting, a, a cave painting in the Southwest showing a brontosaurus. Mm -hmm. And it's like, unless they had seen it, how could they make this look like that? Because uh, they found a bone. Yeah. A they, bone. Yeah. <laughs> and, they, and like Loch Ness. Yeah. As a plesiosaur, I believe it's still living myself. Um, and then, you know, like um, they can see, uh, um, besides the paintings, there's artifacts um, that look like, like protoceratops, like a, a triceratops. And, and there's um, like in the cathedrals in England, you know, they have dinosaurs and they even have the dinosaur skin, you know. Right. They, they, I mean, there's cultures all over the world that show dinosaurs that I can identify as dinosaurs that I have models of right now, but they didn't have the, the technology back then to piece together all the parts and then say, hey, this is that. But I, I've researched cultures 
25 cultures over the world that have some type of dinosaur that I can identify as one of the dinosaurs I have a model of. So, so I truly believe they, they just died out recently from man, humans, killing them, mm -hmm. just like the mammoths and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, and that's the thing that um, people are going to say, oh, you're crazy. But what does the evidence tell you? I mean, right. that's the thing. I mean, you know, how else could you have red blood cells? Is a red blood cell going to stick around 65 million years when they think the dinosaurs became extinct? Uh, no. Um, so, so, you know, we have to be open-minded. We have to look at the evidence. You know, like I said, what does evidence show you? What do the eyes tell you? You see with your eyes, you see in, you're seeing red blood cells in the bone of a dinosaur. Mm -hmm. What's that tell you? So wow, yeah, and so I don't want kids to be inundated that dinosaurs turned into birds. I don't know if you saw the videos in Florida a couple of years ago of the iguanas falling out of trees because it was so cold. Mm -hmm. um, could those iguanas grow wings and and fly? <laughs> I don't think so. so. Yeah, well, wow. very interesting. I want to show you one more room, my okay. whale room. Good job, Coda. Oh, and I forgot to mention Coda, my whale-watching dog. She is a very, very, very famous dog. She has her own Instagram page. Coda finds the whales for us. I she does. And I the otters and the seals yep. and everything else. She's a spotter dog. She is. And she's good at it. And she only barks when she finds whales. <laughs> I taught her and another dog, and when they were pups... I got down one from a gray whale, and gray whales have really stinky breath, like the worst fart you've ever smelled. And so they saw them, they heard them, and it's like, whale, 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 and they connected the dots. Uh -huh. So Coda is very good, aren't you, honey? Yeah, she says yes. <laughs> okay, let me show you in here. Wow. So this is my whale room. Um, what I've done here... On the left side is I've shown you the Arctic. You know, here's gray whales in the Arctic. You know, you have the stuffed polar bear or narwhal, all kinds of stuff that you see in the Arctic. Then we have in the middle here, we have Depot Bay. And on the far right, we have Baja. Um, you see at the bottom of the mural, you see life-size tail flukes. This wow. one that's 20 feet is from a bowhead up in Alaska. Um, this 12-foot one is from a humpback, this 10-foot one is from a gray whale, and this 9-foot one is from an orca. <coughs> so life-size. That's neat. That's neat the way that you got that painted on there. Thank yeah. you. Oh, yeah. Let me take a picture of that. We hold your sweater, though. <coughs> <laughs> I got to stand clear back here. I know. That's really neat. There you go. And then I have in here um, differences between dolphins and porpoises. Um, triangular dorsal fin for a porpoise, hooked for a dolphin. Porpoises typically a shorter beak, dolphins usually a longer beak. Um, the teeth are different. Porpoises, as you can see in, with the bones here and the skulls, they have flat teeth, whereas dolphins have pointed teeth. And so a lot of differences. Um, you see a couple dioramas, one of the Arctic, one of various um, 
Cetaceans, cetaceans are whales, dolphins, and porpoises. Um, you also see a mural here of San Ignacio Lagoon. I have taken people down to the lagoon for, I think, 15 times now. And it's amazing there because gray whale moms literally push their babies up to the boat and you're the human babysitter. You can pet them, you can put your hand in the mouth and touch the tongue. I've done this many, many times. And I think uh, for any mothers out there that if you have a young baby or a toddler and they want attention 24 seven, you want a break. And so the mom comes up to the boat initially, checks us out, and then if she thinks that we're fine, she pulls away and that she was like, take care of my baby, be my human babysitter. <laughs> and, um, and then for sometimes hours, you know, we can't stay there more than like an hour and a half or so, but, but for most of the trip, you know, we're act, interacting with that baby, keeping it occupied. And mom's like, oh, phew. Wow. Yeah. Where's that at in Mexico? Halfway down the Baja California Peninsula, right? Okay. Right there. So. And you're, and you're in between the Baja and, and Mexico mainland. I'm right here, right there. Okay, so you're on the Pacific side Pacific of side. the Baja. There's only three lagoons. Okay. And San Ignacio is one of the three. Okay. So, and um, the last tidbit I want to mention is many times people say that whales evolve from a wolf-like creature. From okay. a wolf. Yeah. Okay. So we saw a gray whale on our trip. Here's a model of a gray whale. You notice that all baleen whales have the two blowholes. Tooth whales only have one blowhole. But if you would look at the internal anatomy of a gray whale or any baleen whale or any tooth whale, you will notice that um, when they breathe, they have the blowholes, goes down the trachea into the lungs, back out. And in the mouth, you come down, um, you eat food in your mouth, it goes down your esophagus into your stomach. Right. And, you know, and that's it. There's no connection between the trachea and the esophagus. Really? No connection between the blowholes and the mouth. When you saw Finding Nemo and you saw Dory and Marlin being blown out of the blowholes after they were swallowed, that part of the movie was fake because there's absolutely no connection between the blowholes in the mouth. Can you imagine if a whale was trying to breathe underwater by opening its mouth? Right. What would happen? Water. Oh, yeah, or even, or even, yeah. It would drown. It would yeah. open its mouth and it drown. So that cannot, cannot occur. So, so evolutionists um, that say, oh yeah, whales evolved from a wolf-like creature, what would happen? You know, wolf-like creature would be like us, um, the same orifice for breathing and eating, mm -hmm. and it would have to change, separate, and be totally different. The transitional form wouldn't even survive. Right, right, right. Common sense? Common sense, yeah. Common sense. Why would it have a need to transform or to evolve if it was breathing one way and doing okay. Yeah, well, they say it was on the land and then it went <clears throat> back into the water. Right. So, for food. So, uh, it doesn't make sense. Whales were always whales. Right. So, always they were always in the water.
They were created that way, and they will always be in the water. They're never going to wow. leave the water and walk on land. Yeah. So. <laughs> They're not. <laughs> this has been an education. Well, Very good. interesting. Well, good. So. Well, Jonah in the well. I believe Jonah was swallowed by a sperm whale. Like one of those right there? Yes, sperm whale. Yeah. Um, if you do some research, you'll notice that two other um, whalers were swallowed by a sperm whale and came out and survived. They cut the whale open, and these two people, two whalers, survived. So it is plausible that could could have happened. And of course, we know with God anything can happen. But um, but yeah, so there's there is definite um, explana explanations for a lot of things that do make sense. So, so if, if you ever want to come to the Whale Sea Life and Shark Museum or go, um, you know, go whale watching, again, OregonWhales.com, but if you would like to talk to me one-on-one -on -one about anything I've said in this pod podcast, um, you can come in here and I'll give you my personal cell number and you can meet with me and, you know, however you believe. But I would love to show you all the evidence that I have with the fossils and everything. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I will always tell you what I see based on the evidence that I have personally seen with my eyes. So what an offer that is. Yeah. I mean, for, for people that are hardcore evolutionists on out, if you want to know what the evidence appears to be and, and talk to you, and your willingness to do that is phenomenal to me. So, well, I so much. appreciate this, Carrie. This has been a great podcast. This has been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot about all kinds of things, uh, a whole gamut of things. And I always finish my podcasts out by saying the world is full of wonder. People need to get out and explore. If you are anywhere near Depot Bay between May and October, yes. definitely stop in, say hi to Carrie. The prices are reasonable. I think it was $50 a person. 45 for kids 12 and under and 55 for adults. So for us, it worked out to about 50 bucks a person because we had Haley with us. And uh, you get to go out for an hour and a half. The boat is unbelievable. It, it absorbs the waves in a way that uh, a lot of boats don't. It's got a lot of horsepower. And Carrie is more than happy to go show you what she can find in the way of whales if they're showing themselves. And I would strongly suggest booking a tour. She is safe. We booked a tour a couple years ago. And... It got canceled on us because we had 12-foot swells. <clears throat> but the day was, was six foot, and it was more than tolerable. So, And the best time to come is July, August, or September. Those are our three best months. Right. 99% chance of seeing whales. 99.9% .9 chance. Well, we saw one this morning. We did. And it, the show wasn't as fantastic as what I would have liked to have had it be, but I'm not at all disappointed with the, with the whole experience. Mm -hmm. So like I said, you need to get out and explore, see this stuff, and everybody have an absolutely wonder-filled day. Thank you. Thank you.
And don't forget to check out our Facebook page at Where Am I To Go Podcast and also our webpage at whereamitogo.com. We have a breakdown state by state of museums we've been to, places we've been to, and you can check it out there if you're traveling and find out where some of these places are and see if there's places you'd like to go see. Thanks again, and once again, have a wonder-filled day. All the road and go, where am I to go? Meet Johnny, where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go? Thank you.